from Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. The late Walter Cronkite warned in the 1990s that in light of the growing religious right in this country, nothing less than democracy itself was at stake. The threat was real then, when the most trusted man in America sounded that alarm while serving as the board chair of Interfaith Alliance. Three decades later, the threat to a vibrant, diverse, representative democracy is existential. And the inspiration for much of the attacks on democracy is the extraordinary resurgence of Christian nationalism. On my first week as host of State of Belief, I've invited a dream team of guests who will help us understand what Christian nationalism is and how it provides a rationale and rallying cry for those attempting to control both our public and private lives and the intentional denigration of democracy. In the second part of our show, Reshma Saujani will share this story about how she woke up one morning to learn that her book, Girls Who Code, had been banned. The conversation also features attorney Sky Perryman of Democracy Forward. But first, you'll hear from Dr. Andrew Whitehead and Dr. Sabrina Den, two experts on Christian nationalism and religious liberty. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all other podcast platforms. Each week, I will be in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to our first guests. Dr. Sabrina Dent is president of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. She is an interfaith, social justice, and human rights advocate with a focus on how race and religious freedom issues impact African-American and other marginalized communities. Dr. Andrew Whitehead is an award-winning author and scholar whose books include Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, and the forthcoming American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Welcome, both of you, to State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Andrew, let's start with you on some definitions, because a lot this is a contested term. Mm-hmm. What falls within the idea and the term of Christian nationalism, and what is just faith and trying to love your country as best you can? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And like you said, it is really important in this moment um, as the term becomes a little more contested and, and for some wanting to take it and use it um, in their own ways, or just to say it, it can mean anything. Um, so in our work, the, the way that we understand Christian nationalism is as an ideology or cultural framework. And so these things include narratives, value systems, um, histories, and, and understandings about what the country should be. Uh, but this particular ideology um, is saying that all civic life in the U.S. should be organized according to one particular expression of the Christian faith. And this Christian faith, um, this particular expression, is is very conservative, both religiously and politically, and ethnocentric. Um, So it's more than just, um, you know, historic theological teachings or religious beliefs, but there's a number of cultural assumptions that come along with Christian nationalism. So, Um, One is a strict moral traditionalism based on maintaining social hierarchy. So who's at the top of society and who comes in the middle and who's at the bottom. Um, A comfort with authoritarian control. So meaning that the world is chaotic and we need the right people in power to either through the threat of violence or through violence to maintain order. Um, And then two, a desire for strict ethno-racial boundaries around American identity and national belonging. So when we're talking about a quote unquote true American, this generally means white natural born um, citizens, Christian citizens. Um, And so it really does privilege um, the white 
Christian experience in the U.S. And so when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it's just so important to understand that it's a very particular expression of Christianity that wants to be privileged over all others. And so, again, this doesn't mean that conservative Christians or Christians by and large can't um, take part in civil society or vote or bring their values into the public square, but it means that theirs shouldn't be privileged and it shouldn't limit the opportunity and right of other Christians, non-Christians, people who have no religious faith at all to also have an equal seat at the table. Yeah. Dr. Dunn, I wonder if you could speak into that, because that last point feels really, really important. Yes. I I actually was thinking about when Andrew was talking about the social hierarchy piece of it, right? Like that to me is a critical point that needs to be made and understood. Um, The social hierarchy, um, of course, like the ideology itself is very problematic and um, makes even life more complicated for people of color and for marginalized communities. That includes also the LGBTQ community. And so, when you think of this host um, social hierarchy, I also think of uh, historically how things have played out in the United States when we're talking about religion, when we're talking about religious freedom, who has the right to live, to thrive, to be, to exist, right? Who has a right to even speak for God in public, right? Because that is that is a major question that people need to think about. So it puts um, it puts a lot of different communities in a place where. Uh, we are minimized, um, undermined, as well as our rights. And the social hierarchy piece is important because it comes into play when we're thinking about actually the human rights or the civil rights of these many different communities that are often targeted by Christian nationalism. And that shows up in many ways. Um, and shows up in conversations about reproductive access, reproductive justice, reproductive freedom. And I'm being very intentional about using those different words because they have different meanings for different communities. Um, as, as well as the fact when you think about even conversations about public schools, uh, right now I'm in the state of Virginia. And so Governor Yunkin put out uh, some policies, some model policies that are um, right now under public comment um, for people to uh, either support or oppose whatever they choose to do um, in that, which I oppose them. Um, So I think it's important to think about that because the complexity for this and the the reason why I'm focusing on this particular example in public schools is that public schools are places that supposed to serve everyone where everyone is supposed to be welcome. There is no religious privilege that's supposed to be in public schools, right? That separation of church and state is so important um, in that space, right? That government should not uh, prefer one religion or non-religious community over another and yet these policies speak to a certain set of beliefs and ideologies that people may hold. Now, I want to make it very clear. I'm not suggesting that Governor Yunkin is a Christian nationalist. I want to make that very clear. I'm not saying that. But these policies are very problematic because they go in the direction of, again, a set of certain beliefs. And so when people in the public square, the general public, who are not having academic conversations about like Christian nationalism, don't really see examples of how this translates into the public square and has impact on our children. When we hear conversations about that are framed in ways that become attractive to some communities, such as school choice, Right. But well, really, when we think about voucher programs and everything that they were actually designed in the 50s and 60s to defy desegregation orders. Right. People didn't want their children going to school with black children. It's like we have to look at it now to see how does that play out in the 21st century? Yeah. One one of our uh, guests in the second segment will be Reshma Sarjani, who had her book banned two weeks ago by a school board. So this has real implications for freedom of expression, as well as everything you've just talked about. I wonder if we just can maybe bring the lens back a little bit. I think it's historical context is so important. Everything that both of you have just talked about. Christian nationalism, we're, we're seeing it kind of balloon up. I honestly, like, it feels like the last four months, we've really 
I mean, obviously, uh, both of you have been talking about this for a while. It's becoming part of the public conversation, but it's not a new thing in American politics. It's not a new ideology or anything like that. Andrew, you, you've kind of written the book uh, about this. Can you give us a short just timeline of what we're so that we can understand what inflection point we're actually at right now? Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of what we see today really is a result of the rise of the Christian right in the 70s, which was responding, as Dr. Dent said, to civil rights movement uh, in the 60s, both, um, you know, uh, the, you know, growing, um, you know, feminism movement, but also, um, you know, desegregation and, and equal rights for Black Americans. And so, um, the rise of the Christian right was responding to that. And I think a lot of, um, you could say, the flavor of what we see today is is from that time and that period. But as you also point out, um, that has roots um, earlier into the 20th century. And, and that period has roots into the uh, 19th century and, you know, through civil war. And that has roots going further back. So even before the founding of the U.S., we see how Christianity um, and uh, supremacy for a particular group, generally white Christian men in the United States, has been intertwined. Um, and so this country and society is built for and should work for a certain group of people, and this is how God has designed it. So if we look at Manifest Destiny mm -hmm. um, and this idea of taking over land or trying to make sense of why it's okay to enslave people that were taken from their homes in Africa, um, these things are a part of, of that narrative. And so that history is with us. Um, and so it has shifted and changed. Um, but really what we see today, I think, is a result of a lot of the work of the Christian right in the 1970s. Thank you. I want to turn now to the elections that are coming up because we're seeing this come. People are embracing a Christian nationalism mantle in a way that seems uh, shocking to us, given the reverberations that this comes from a long history of oppressive ideology and the fact that people are embracing it. I'm wondering, uh, Sabrina, if you can talk a little bit about like how you're seeing that come up in where Virginia and other states around the country, that Christian nationalism is a contested term, but some people are embracing it. What does that mean? Yes, um, some people are embracing it. Um, they're embracing the ideologies. I think if you have sophisticated speakers that have the funding, that have uh, the messaging, hold on, the, and the messaging that they've had for a very long time, right? They've just finessed it a little bit better to put it out to the public. And so um, if you put your language in a way in which it appeals to a certain group of individuals that are not really, um, I, I don't want to say sophisticated, right? Because these are sophisticated individuals, but I'm talking about those that are receiving this message and, and choosing to believe the lies that are put in, being put forth, then that, that appeals to them in terms of as it relates to the ballot box, right? That they are taking this message in and saying, oh, well, this was said by this particular elected official, and I believe it. And I think also to go back to Andrew's point about history, right? We can't overlook history. What's happened is that the landscape in America is changing. The religious landscape, um, as well as the cultural ethnic landscape of the United States is changing. And, and people feel threatened. They feel like that there is not space for all of us here in this country. And the reality of it is, there is. There is. It's just that Thank you. Has, Amen. Yes, yes. Yes. There has been a narrative that has made people feel as though if if someone else receives this loaf of bread, I won't have any for my family. And that's not true. The bakery can keep baking. <laughs> right. And so um I'll bring I'll put on my pastor hat and say that's actually not Christian. Like that, <laughs> you know, we can all have a loaf of bread. We're all equally able to enjoy the bread. So I I, I thank you for saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. So so what happens is then that messaging gets translated and at the ballot box right now, what we see on the federal level is that we've seen that our elected officials are not willing to push hard enough for voter protection in this country. We, we watched that happen in January. That is very problematic and it is very concerning to me um, as someone who does vote, as someone who knows that my ancestors were challenged by that. And I'm not talking about far, far back. I'm talking about my grandfather, right? Uh, he, there is a narrative about my grandfather even being challenged at the polls, even after 
after he paid the Poland tax, right? So I think that it's important for people to think about that. But yet the restrictions that are put in place are really targeting minority communities because um, minority communities see that we have a lot more stake at stake for our lives and we're trying to mobilize even more. And I'm talking about across the spectrum of um, minority communities, right? Um, but so that that's what you see happening in the public square. And and again, the what's happening right now is what I see is that people are having a stronger commitment to mobilizing people of faith. That's what my organization um, has been doing. Like we've been a part of some impactive ca um, training campaigns where we've been notifying people, reminding people to get out and vote. Um, even even on our social media campaign in the state of Virginia, because the deadline to register or update your registration is October 17th. So we're reminding people, hey, check your status. If you're not registered, register. And then on top of that, check your polling place, because there has been a lot of redistricting happening in this country. And a redistricting is a voter suppression tactic. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guests are Andrew Whitehead and Sabrina Dent. Democracy, full democracy, is not necessarily a friend of Christian nationalism, and uh, and I think you've you know written eloquently that actually democracy is is not exactly an aim of Christian nationalism. Uh, I wonder if you could speak into that, and then I would love for us to get into something we both saw on Twitter today about the the this is like such an amazing tactic of like that the term Christian nationalism. I'm reading it from a press release about how the term Christian nationalism is being used to suppress voter turnout among Christian conservative voters. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I wish everybody could see uh, Dr. Dent's face right now. But anyway, uh, Dr. Whitehead, can you can you talk a little bit about like I put a lot in that question, but that's like there is a lot going on here about, first of all, Christian nationalism and its relationship to full democracy and also what we're seeing right now as a tactic of those who are going to use Christian nationalism. It's a very kind of familiar tactic. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I do think, you know, with with Christian nationalism as an ideology, and when we survey the American public, we do see that um, the idea of the, the United States being a Christian nation and that it should elevate particular moral or political concerns as, you know, Christian and the right way to go. This is what God's design is for the country. Um, and so people internalize this and then feel as though we have to ensure these come to pass because God has demanded it essentially. And so when you legitimate a certain political viewpoint in the will of God, um, then no matter what stands in the way, even if it's democracy itself, um, then that should, should be taken away. Now, this isn't saying that Christians shouldn't take part in the political process. Um, we should, but we have to play by the rules of democracy and all say that we're going to play by these same rules. Because if we don't, then one group you know, can come in and say, well, this is just what's going to, to have to take place. Um, and so the, the real threat here that we see um, is that when we survey the American public in one recent study that we had, um, those that embrace Christian nationalism were more likely to deny that voter suppression is a problem. Um, they're more likely to say it's too easy to vote. They're more likely to believe that voter fraud is rampant, more likely to support a civics test for the right to vote, which um, echoes Jim Crow um, laws in the South. Um, they would support laws to disenfranchise voters who might have a criminal record. And we know that the criminal justice system is skewed uh, towards uh, against minority populations. And so again, there's undertones there. And so um, the real threat Not here, to mention, we can't just completely ignore the Christian nationalist symbols of January 6th and the use of violence to undermine and overthrow an elected government. Yeah, for sure. So I was part of a report from the Baptist Joint Committee and the Freedom from Religion Foundation that highlighted the connections between Christian nationalism and the January 6th insurrection. Um, and we see, so Christian nationalism wasn't the only, or maybe not even the most important, but it was a very clear um, part of the story of January 6th. And we see that Americans, how they understand what happened on January 6th is shifting and changing as we get further away. For those that embrace Christian nationalism, they're more likely to say 
um, we shouldn't prosecute those that rioted at the Capitol. Um, they're more likely now than they were soon after the insurrection. And so it's reshaping how even we're understanding political violence in our country. Um, and those that embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to say, hey, if democracy doesn't return the results that I want, then we should do away with democracy itself. And so like you, you mentioned, Paul, with the Family Research Council and one of their town halls that they're sponsoring, um, I believe it is there in Virginia, um, coming up when they're saying that Christian nationalism is just about trying to suppress Christian conservative voters, um, nothing could be further from the truth. Just to be clear, it's the use of the term Christian nationalism the way we are correctly defining it. So it's not right. Christian nationalism itself. It's 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 us talk. Just us talking about this is suppressing white. I don't know if they said white, but they, they, that's what they mean. Uh, you know, white Christian, uh, Christian conservative voters, um, which, you know, I just I, we need to speak right into that, Andrew yeah. and, and Sabrina. I would love for both of you just like that is such an outrageous claim. It is. It is. I, I can't say it enough. Right. We have to look back at history and see how history brought us to this point and that there were actors along the way um, that were a part of continuing to build this narrative. Um, I think about even the agendas. So um, there's a there's a documentary that I often refer to as um, American Heretics, the Politics of the Gospel. And in there, there is a clip with Jerry Falwell and they're at this convention and Jerry Falwell says that there are three things that we need to do. He was like, we need to make sure that they get baptized in Jesus name. We need to make sure, I can't remember the second thing, but I remember that it was like, go, we got to get them registered to vote, to go out. Like that is, there is an agenda. There has always been an agenda there. And so that agenda actually, again, it disenfranchises so many marginalized, um, community, uh, marginalized communities. And even I'm thinking about the indigenous communities that, you know, and how, or even the case with the Kennedy versus Bremerton case, right? And how Christian nationalists, people are like, no, the, the coach has a right to pray. Well, what if he was of a different religious identity, right? I don't even think it would have made it that far. What if he was non-religious? And some people say, well, that's that's not what we should look at. No, we do need to look at that. Because when I think of Christian nationalism, when I think of religious freedom in this country, again, I raise the question, whose religious freedom? Who has the right? Because as soon as some of our visible identifying markers show who we are, the narrow changes, the rules change, and right. that is and that has been the nature of the United States. Well, and you've done so much work on this religious freedom for who and with the Black Church. Like, what does it mean for you know religious freedom for the Black Church right now around mobilizing voters? Religious right. freedom for Jewish uh, community around abortion. Right. You know, there's a lot of ways that this is, you know, the, I want to make sure you get a chance to plug your great conference that's coming up that everybody, it's going to be online. People can get up and register. Can you mention again what what that is about and what you're hoping to accomplish there? Oh, absolutely. So October 27th through the 29th, the Center for Faith, Justice and Reconciliation has partnered with so many incredible organizations, including Interfaith Alliance, um, also Union Theological Seminary and a host of other organizations that have joined with us. Even I want to mention this, the National Council of Jewish Women, Shoulder to Shoulder. So you have a Muslim and Jewish organization um, that has come along with us to host this virtual conference where people have the opportunity to get a better understanding of how religious freedom needs to be reimagined, right? How the ways in which Christian nationalism, what we're talking about today, Christian, Christian nationalism has been used to infringe upon the rights of human beings in this country. But even with that, we have to recognize what our rights are and recognize that we have a responsibility to, to hold, uphold those rights and protect them, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And in so doing it with respect. So our conference is, is titled Reimagining Religious Freedom, Rights, Responsibilities, and Respect. We have an, a host of incredible speakers, including 
Dr. Aubrey uh, Hendricks, who is at uh, Columbia University. He wrote the book, Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation. Paul will be featured as one of our presenters for the panel, as well as Amanda Tyler. We have Michael Vasquez. But here's the thing. We recognize that when we're talking about religious freedom in this country, that we can't just talk about it. We have to take action. And our thing in this conference is to introduce people to the terms that we're talking about today, like Christian nationalism, to help people unpack religious freedom in this country, but also to find the organizations that are doing work and align themselves and work with those organizations, elevate the work that they're doing, and then you as individuals to take action. So we have centered the voices of LGBTQ people in this conversation. We have uh, Black and Latino women that will be a part of the conversation. We have people that, from, uh, from, that are identified in this country as religious minorities. Why? Because this work takes all of us. And we cannot have yeah. these conversations without any of us. I wish we had Absolutely. more room at the table to have everyone there. So. It's, a, it's a remarkable conference. And I, I think I, I, we're getting to, to the end of this conversation, but I, I, and I'm so, I could go on and on and on with both of you. Andrew, what Sabrina was talking about, like, we need to take action. We need to, you know, this, it's great to, to understand the terms, understand the history, but we're making history right now. Now, each mm-hmm. of us, it's up to each of us to make the future, future history right mm-hmm. now. What are some practical things that each of us can do in our own lives and in our own communities, um, both around voting, but also just in our religious communities, in our, you know, in our civic life? What are what are things that you've seen are effective in some ways, dismantling the power of Christian nationalism as it exerts itself in local and national ways? Yeah, that's a great question. And and two, one that it's great to be a part of a number of different groups and seeing the work that, you know, Dr. Den is doing and Interfaith um, and BJC and, and all these different groups coming together. So some things that I think of is, is similar to thinking short and long term. So right now, democracy is under threat. Um, there are uh, efforts in different states to um, limit who has access to the vote or just to make it harder. If we, you know, the idea is if there's a couple more hurdles than maybe those that are, um, you know, on the margins or disenfranchised, they won't be able to get to the polls. And so that, I think, flies in the face of not only true democratic ideals, which as Americans we should be a part of and and desire, but also Christians, if you are a person of faith, um, wanting everybody to have a voice and play a role, I think would be important. So the short term is, um, getting yourself registered to vote and taking part in that process and then ensuring that hopefully you can help others. So opposing those efforts to limit the vote or um, partnering with organizations that are on the ground um, that are doing that hard work. It is difficult work, but um, supporting them as you can, because I think that's the real threat we're under right now. I think the long term is more of the, you know, the changing hearts and minds, but we can't focus on that right now because that takes too long. Um, That's long work. It won't happen for um, it won't happen quickly. And so we have to do the short term work of, of defending the right to vote, access to the vote, um, but then the long term work, too. So having these discussions, seeking out books and listening to speakers and particularly so as a as a white male for me, listening to the voices and reading the books of those who are outside my experience. I think that's one of the, the key ways that white Christians can start to wrestle with some of what we've been handed. Um, within white Christianity in the U.S. Um, and and try to learn there are very different expressions of Christianity and some um, for those that have lived on the margins, they're closer, I think, to the center of God's story because um, Christianity has always been with those on the margins. And so um, in the United States, a a place of kind of triumph and victory, um, you know, Christianity has, I think, in some ways been um, abused in that sense of, of what it can mean. And so hearing those voices, I think, is, is key. So um, pushing outside those boundaries of, of what maybe you've been handed um, growing up um, and then learning from those, um, empathizing with those folks and then following, you know, where they're saying we should go, following and, and trying to support their access to democracy. And, and you know, Dr. Um, Jamar Tisby, he, he said it a while ago, and I just, it always comes back to me is um, for Christians, widening kind of our vision of what Christianity is. It's not just white Christianity, um, but that there's so much we can learn from each other 
um, on what this faith is, how it can be lived out. And again, it isn't that Christians shouldn't play a role in democracy. I don't see how you can be a Christian and not be active um, in democracy and the world around you, but who is it benefiting? Um, is it so that all can flourish or is it just that a particular group can flourish or maintains privileged access to, to what our society can and does offer? Um, so I think the gospel is about a common flourishing for all folks. And I think Thank that's you. what we should be about. Dr. Dunn, can you give us the last word on, uh, on what we can all do right now um, to, uh, to be helpful to make let democracy flourish uh, as well as all the people flourish. Right. I'm honestly say uh, what you can do right now is you can register to attend this event. I, I honestly would say that um, because I think that what Andrew pointed to in terms of listening to the narratives of the people that are marginalized by these experiences and really getting a deeper sense of the impact of it, take action, register to vote, right? Um, be engaged in your local community. That's what mm. you can do. Um, so you can go to our website, faithandjusticerva.com to learn more about this upcoming event. But as I have conversations, Andrew is right. It's going to take a long time to change hearts and minds, but the conversations need to happen. People need to understand that one of the things that people might see as something simple for them is actually more a burden and a hardship for another community and to really understand that. And I have my own narrative about, you know, uh, the redistricting that took, cap uh, took place in my hometown when someone simplified, well, the polling place is now only one more mile away. One more mile is significant when you don't have transportation. And yes. so, um, so like things like that, people need to be um, mindful of and mindful of the nuances and the experiences of people. And then I want to add this last thing in is that, you know, um, uh, Andrew said, Christianity has always been with the marginalized, right? Because we've always been oppressed by it in some way, challenged by it, and sometimes shaped by it, depending on who we are. Um, but we have have to remember that every, especially people of color, are not a monolith. And so every person of color is not a Christian, right? And so like, it's important that people understand that. And I think that's part of the conversation that also needs to happen with Christian nationalism and to marry that with the, the honest truth of the fact that it's white supremacy. Right. It's white supremacy. And we have to name it. We have to be able to speak it. And we have to be able to be uncomfortable with the with the discomfort and that we feel in having these conversations because they're real, because many lives are at stake. So people do need to take action, go to the polls um, and be active in your communities. But listen to those when they're speaking their truths about their experiences in this nation. Dr. Sabrina Udent serves as president of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. She is an interfaith social justice and human rights advocate. Her public scholarship addresses how the intersections of race and religious freedom issues impact African Americans and other marginalized communities. Dr. Andrew Whitehead is Associate Professor of Sociology at IUPUI in Indianapolis, where he co-directs the Association of Religious Data Archives in the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. He is the co-author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, which won the 2021 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for Scientific Study of Religion. His new book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church, will be released in August of 2023. Thank you both very much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Up next, I'll talk with Reshma Saujani of Girls Who Code and Sky Perriman, president of Democracy Forward. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we've discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Reshma Saujani is a lawyer, author, and first 
Indian-American woman ever to run for Congress. She's the founder of Girls Who Code and the founder and CEO of the Marshall Plan for Moms. Her books include Girls Who Code, Learn to Code, and Change the World, and Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, and Why It's Different Than You Think. Sky Perryman is president and CEO of Democracy Forward, a national legal organization dedicated to using the law and regulatory process to advance progress for people and communities in the United States. An accomplished attorney, strategist, and advocate, her work has been widely recognized for its positive impact on people and communities. Sky sits on several boards, including that of Interfaith Alliance. Sky Reshma, this is such an important conversation to be having right now, and in your hands, such an empowering one. Thank you for taking this time to be with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having Thanks for having So Reshma, you have just been through an experience that I would love for you to walk us through about censorship and what it indicates about this moment that we're living through in our, our democracy. Yeah, I mean, I just pretty much had the wildest week, I feel like, uh, of my life in a long time. I woke up uh, last Saturday morning. I'm like sitting there with my baby, you know, watching a robo police and you know i'm looking at my phone and you know there's a news alert uh saying that our girls who code books were banned and you know i was shocked i had uh, almost like five years ago you know wrote a series of books that were essentially about you know inspiring more girls to learn how to code i like travel all across the country and I'd go into like these rural areas and people would say well i don't have wi-fi you know, I don't have a device at home for my kid. How does my kid learn how to code? Is there a book? And there wasn't a book. And so Girls Who Code, you know, made them, wrote them, you know, worked in partnership, you know, with a handful of authors and we put them out there. And, you know, we have 10,000 Girls Who Code clubs across the country. So they were everywhere. And so I read that they're banned and I'm like, no, 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 this can't be right. Like, why would anyone ban books about teaching girls to code? Sure enough, you know, Pan America had done this incredible survey and they have a whole like spreadsheet. And I looked and I saw Girls Code Books Band, Central York, you know what I mean? Pennsylvania. And so I spent a couple of days trying to understand what happened, like texted the, te- you know, emailed the teachers, DM them, said, you know, uh, the school district, like, you know, crickets, cricket, crickets, crickets, except for these handful of teachers and students who had basically led, um, you know, led an effort to get these books unbanned. And and then, you know, wake up kind of Monday morning after learning that they were unbanned, you know, from the school district, then sending it, you know, a, a tweet saying, well, actually, we never banned them in the first place. And so then we had to then spend three or four days going back, you know, debating the definition of a band, getting the school district to actually admit that they banned them. Because, again, you know, like a lot of schools, you know, post the murder of George Floyd, a group of amazing teachers had come up with a list of resources that they thought the community, that the students, you know, would benefit from, you know, that were for, for diversity. Um, the school board decides to ban the books that are on, you know, this resource list, one of which were Girls Who Code, and they're banned essentially for, you know, during the pandemic. And then a group of students and teachers basically work again to unban the books. Um, and so it was this, you know, but the school, you know, so this was an example actually of a school doing the right thing, you know, and learning from its mistake and the community getting involved and people, you know, and, and, but, but, but instead of saying, yes, we banned the books, we shouldn't have banned them. We made a mistake. We unbanned them. We'll do better next time. They wanted to revert back to the lie. And so it was just this kind of really intense, week um, of really understanding one, I think, and Sky and I talked about this earlier, one, it's just, um, I am a lawyer, I didn't realize that books could legally be banned. And so what is happening in school districts across the country is some parents, you know, on the right, right, are challenging books, and not just about like, you know, about LGBTQ, about race, about gender, you know, and school boards are allowing those challenges to go through. And then no one is coming back to litigate on them. And so for a lot of, and I think what was so deeply disturbing about this is that, you know, in this conversation about CRT, people have talked about, well, the, you know, the books are being banned because we don't want white kids to feel like they're responsible for everything bad that's happened in the universe. But when you look at the books that are banned, these are books that were written for our kids. 
these are books that are written for black girls, brown girls, so that they can be present, you know what I mean, and see themselves. And that was what just was mind blowing for me. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that we you almost could stop with, like they're banning books because the idea that there's like a an appropriate book that, you know, I mean, that should be banned. It, right. It, just to start there. I mean, but 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 then as you get into the nuance of it and I think one of the things that I, I think this is this gets to very much like the conversation that we had in the first segment of this show, which was like there's a certain segment of legitimate discourse uh, set by Christian white Christian men, and then there's everything else that's up suspect for being like what what is possible, and I and I think using this the banning books is such a like a a, a kind of out there it feels like isn't that what happened in Nazi Germany? Like what is what does it mean to ban a book? But then. It, this is happening and we're restricting discourse, which is, I think, very much connected to Christian nationalism. Skya, I'd love to bring you in as someone who's really concerned about the law and democracy, uh, but also like as someone who's concerned about the rise of Christian nationalism and how it's playing out in subtle uh, but significant ways in our society. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I um, what Reshma said is so right in terms of what we see, which is not just an effort that is incredibly concerning from anybody that cares about democracy to limit expression and education and curriculum and free, you know, marketplace of ideas, but also to deny uh, that there is a movement to do that. And we see that, by the way, across a, a range of issues, not just on book censorship, but on healthcare, on workers' rights and the environment. There's always now this refrain from this certain segment of society, oh no, we're really not doing this. And you're you know, pointing to someone that's trying to advocate for free expression, democracy. You know, you're just a um, unhinged activist, right? We see this gaslighting of people who are really just trying to make their communities better and to protect our country and our democracy during this time. And so I was really glad you were going to feature this topic on state of belief, because I do think it's related to this religious right fundamentalism and Christian nationalism that we see uh, throughout this rise throughout the country. At Democracy Forward, we've been filing public records requests in many communities throughout the country to learn what's happening. Um, we're seeing some officials have started even trying to delete um, records of what they're doing. And so we're, we're looking to challenge that as well as to get to the bottom of this in, in state and local communities, because we do know that the majority of people in this country and the majority of parents in this country want their kids to get good, fulsome education. And that this is really a movement that's seeking to ban books. It doesn't represent the majority of people. Um, it doesn't represent American democracy, but it has gained a real outsized amount of political power. So thank you for, for making space for this on, on your show. I, I am curious for for both of you as trained lawyers and also as as women who are um, committed to abortion rights for women who wish who want to have an abortion and other gender issues. I mean, you know, Reshma, what you're doing right now with pay up and with uh, Marshall Plan for Moms, it does seem like there's a um, there's a way in which um, the the again the conversation is circumscribed by a certain legitimate discourse, and when you're outside of that discourse, you're suspect. And I just am wondering, like, how how does gender uh, fit into the conversation about Christian nationalism and the broader conversation about what is what is okay, and then maybe a little bit more about what the law what how the law can be. <laughs> it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Right now, so. Curious how you're reading this moment with the work you're doing on gender, Rashma, yeah. and specifically with um, with Marshall Plan for Moms. Well, I think we're in the middle of a war on women, period. I mean, you just saw millions of women pushed out of their workplace in the pandemic because we're a country that doesn't have paid leave or affordable childcare. And so women are constantly navigating their roles as mothers and as workers and talk about gaslighting. You know, again, you know, we do, we, we we're you know, we don't respect in many ways, you know, the importance of, of, of motherhood and provide the resources and support and policies uh, to, to support American moms. And then that was bad enough. But then we the Dobbs decision came out 
And so we entered a period of now forcing birth. So we're forcing birth in a country, right, that has high rates of infant mortality for women of color, that again, doesn't have paid leave, that doesn't have affordable childcare. And so it's so interconnected. And so we were in a period of, you know, again, you know, you know, forcing control over people's bodies, which is like a fundamental right. What I saw with this book banning stuff was like, and now we're trying to, you know, again, force what they do with their minds. So it's like full circle, right? Like I am not going to give you access to information about what, what choices you can make, whether you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a coder or an engineer or so that you don't have control over what your mind thinks anymore. In addition to, I'm going to take control over your body. And the other kind of thing that's happening as you know, in the background too, is that we're trying, they're trying to get rid of sex education in the schools. And so again, it's all interconnected to controlling women and controlling their choices. And we have got to have our eyes wide open about this. That is exactly right. And it's, you know, it is what's, what's so disturbing about it is especially it is, it, it, it's under the guise of protecting you know, it's protecting the children, protecting women. And, you know, the, the, there's like an elevation of motherhood, I think, in a lot of conservative Christian and other uh, religious traditions. And yet there's no dedication to recognizing what mothers actually need when they choose to have children, including what you're working on, Reshma, so, you know, diligently is, you know, maternity, you know, maternity leave and uh, and equal pay, all these things. With There's no there's no commitment commitment to that. It's it's lip service. Yeah, it's not even on their agenda. I mean, there's a extreme movement of under the guise of parents' rights that is happening on the right, which is really about, again, the, the quote, protection of our children. None of what's in that agenda is is about, you know, again, these the you know, the resources and the support that people need when they become parents. And and, and again, I think I, right. it's, it's we have to be very, very, very critical you know, and, and about the dishonesty, you know what I mean, of how we use, how they on the right use these terms. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Sky, you and I were together when uh, Texas decided to um, not release maternity yeah. uh, mortality rates. And that just seemed to me like, again, it's like, okay, you don't, we're not going to let you have the information to get the full picture of what's going on. How does that fit in? Like, that just seems like it's just one example of how there's a, there's a, there's a curtailing of information in order to put forth an agenda. Which is exactly what we see. So in the maternal health context, you're correct. I mean, states like Texas are not releasing data as they're required to by law. They're not expanding Medicaid, which every um, public health advocate and every um, expert in the country would say is a critical thing that needs to happen in order to reduce the preventable maternal mortality rates. Um, And so you do have people turning a blind eye to women and moms at the same time trying to wrap themselves in this family rhetoric, which is just, um, it's false and it's misleading. But I think that what you all, what you both are um, tapping into, it it really comes back to the censorship piece too, which is that there is an effort now to deprive people of facts and evidence, but also of history. So we know in the women's rights context that the history that the Supreme Court, the Justices Alito's opinion went through with respect to early American life in the context of abortion was not accurate, right? And, um, And that for, for the work you do, Paul, that many religious traditions have supported reproductive autonomy and the rights of, of for you know people in their bodies for many years. This was not a religious movement that um, that it was not something that began as a religious movement in the country, but something that religious fundamentalism sort of took over as a messaging piece. And so I think we now see that whether it's on healthcare or on teaching proper history around race and gender, or even now what Russians do on. STEM and science and evidence and how we can make sure that we're equipping the next generation of people to have opportunity in this world that is moving very quickly and we need our kids to be able to not only keep up but to thrive and to lead and so it's all so interconnected um, and um, and I think is connected to this very fundamentalist movement Paul that you've been um, uh, you know a leader in uh, pushing back against it at the Interfaith Alliance so I'm Paul Rauschenbusch Reshma Saujani and Sky Perryman are with me as we continue our urgent discussion of Christian nationalism as an existential threat to our society and to democracy itself. 
I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the Supreme Court and just the kind of the last six months and and going forward. Both of you are supremely talented lawyers and um, and have a perspective on that specifically as women and as uh, women who are interested in issues of equity and and trying to understand what it means to have a just uh, country that moves forward. Any thoughts about not, not only Dobbs, but also Kennedy and some of the other uh, um, recent court cases that we've had? And and maybe some of the ways, uh, Sky, if you could take this, what are the ways that the law can ha- be our friend? Because right now it just does not feel like it's our friend. Well, look, representation matters. And even when we look at um, uh, things and see the bleakness, we know that people engaging with the law, whether they're lawyers or not, is incredibly important. And so what I would say is that we've got to see the law and the courts as a frontline in the battle for democracy, not just as a backstop. So for too long, um, so many people uh, that are that are concerned about democracy and progress have looked at the courts as the last resort of where you go when bad actors are doing bad things to try to get them to stop. And, and we have to use the courts that way. And in fact, that's what they're that's what they should be. And uh, you know, we hope that judges would agree with that. But that is what they should be under our constitution. But we also have to dream bigger and look for what the promise of democracy really is and seek to create that through our laws, whether that is through legislation and community involvement and a lot of the work that Rush was leading or work in the in to, to create the law in new ways to um, make sure that it's fulfilling the ultimate promise of democracy and the ultimate promise under our constitution. And I think about your um, great-grandfather, Justice Brandeis, in doing that. Justice Brandeis was seen as a you know, lion of the law in so many ways, but he dissented a lot of the time. And what we saw was that his dissents really did form the basis of a people-centered jurisprudence that uh, was able to carry forward rights. And we're just, we're back in a, in a place where that type of legal work is needed, but also it's people work and you don't have to be a lawyer to do that work. And so, um, so that's sort of, mm. it's not, you know, it's realistic optimism. I think it's not, you know, overly optimistic about where we're going to be in the next few years, but I think we have to not cede this ground because they have shown since Dobbs, what we have seen is that the right wing is not stopping at that. And this is just a stop on a way to a much more regressive and dark place for people and communities. And so we have to get in and and push back and forward. That's so powerful, Scott. And I think they've made their targets clear. You know, to not read the Dobbs decision and Clarence Thomas's, um, you know, opinion and not say, yes, they're coming for contraception and same sex marriage and interracial marriage. It's the, you know, they've made it very clear that if the right did not exist at the founding of the country, it does not exist. And and so we have to be smarter. Like, what, what, what do they say? It's like when, when people show you who you are, believe them. Right. It's like we have to like. They're telling you. And it's the same thing, Sky. You, you know, you, you, the, you made this point to me too. That was so powerful about we have to start using the courts as our friend as well. You know, when you see something, for example, happened yesterday in Florida, where athletes have to show, you know, their menstruation, you know, data to basically play sports. The first instinct for us should be on the left to sue them, right? And right. the fact that, like, when the book ban started happening two years ago, every single one of those school districts should have been sued. And so there's no way that we can't keep establishing precedent unless we use the power of the law as our friend. Um, and, and, we, and we have so many incredible lawyers like on our side, you know what I mean? That, 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 right. that and, the, and the law supports what we're, the arguments that we're making. So it, it actually tactically doesn't make sense, right? That we're not actually using this as an arsenal in our tool. So I, I'm so grateful for Sky and the work, you know, that they're doing at Democracy Forward, right? For like, for building this army and and looking to not just like, not always playing defense, but playing offense, Yes, you know? Like yes. I read what the parents' rights groups are talking about in their blogs as I, I'm like, oh, you're coming after sex education. I see you. You know what I mean? And, and we gotta go go there before they get there. 
Right. I and think that's so helpful. And we can the trap of letting people say that we're overreacting because yeah. that's what people did for women's right. rights advocates for many years. You're overreacting. Roe has set a law. It'll never be overturned. You know, you know, it's what Rushma said, you know, um, when people show you who they are, we do need to believe them and we need to be prepared because our kids um, really the futures depend on it. Right. And also the 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 framing the debate. Oh, we're just protecting children. You know, that. Oh, okay, so they've already, like, if, if we let them have that, you know, but that's not what they're doing. They're actually stunting children from not allowing them to fully learn and grow. Yeah. So, like, how do we how, how do we also think about in, in messaging? And how do we also recognize that, you know, I, I just want to urge the lawyers out there to recognize that religion is also on your side, that the majority of religious communities do not support the Dobbs decision. The majority of the religious communities do not support rolling back same-sex marriage. The majority of religious communities would support, the, you know, the the freedom of expression and and uh, information that comes from uh, girls who code books. And so, I I want to yeah. I want us to make sure that we lean into the the actual majority that we represent and no longer feel like we're some sort of we're we're not the fringe. We're actually the majority and we're trying to protect the majority rights as opposed to allowing a thin slice of America, which is what we're seeing now represented in the Supreme Court, dictate to the rest of us what morality is, what we're allowed to learn, what we're allowed to to do. I I did want to just, we were... Sounds dire, but it's not all dire. And one of the things that's not dire is the the seating of uh, Justice Jackson. And Rushma, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience of you were in the room, which is, you know, just was such a great honor. And if you could just talk a little bit about um, what that experience was like and and how that might inspire the rest of us. I mean, it was a huge honor to be in the room. To me, it was just a demonstration of how democracy works. You know, to have to watch Justice Jackson take her seat next to Brett Kavanaugh, all the Supreme Court justices were in the room. And, you know, this is this is it was it gave me hope, you know, to see so many people of color, uh, you know, so many black people in the courtroom watching history, you know, Um, and the the seeing the first black woman on, you know, take her seat on the Supreme Court was just this is when democracy works. And so we have to keep fighting, you know, for those moments, because I I do think, you know, I I do think that justice is on our side. That justice is on our side. I do. I do. I I do think that going back to what you said before, you know, what we're fighting against is the fringe. Even when I think about what I experienced last week, the vast majority of parents did not want those books banned. But these five, six parents were really loud and really aggressive. And it's almost like what they say about the squeaky wheel, right? And we sometimes don't ever want to be the squeaky wheel. And we got to get really loud and we got to get aggressive, you know, and we got to get really, really clear in our moral righteousness about what we're, what we're, what we want for our children, what we want for our future and fight for it. Like, I often feel like I say this right now and I say as, as a woman, we are bearing witness to our own oppression. So it is our choice to decide whether we are going to wake up and fight or or let this continue to happen to us. You know, things are being not necessarily just done to us, but we are allowing it to happen. And so we need to decide. I mean, you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, in Iran, you know, with the women who are basically. And I would say it's like we decide I mean, when Dobbs happened, we should have burned it down. You know, but we continue to think, oh, it's going to get better. Oh, it's not going to be so bad. Oh, they're not going to do that. Oh, they would, that wouldn't happen. And it does, and it does, and it does, and it does. Yeah, that is just, you know, and and we're, you know, you know, I just was thinking that the three of us, each of us has young children who are going to grow up into this world and, and, and we have to fight for them. You know, I mean, we really like, you know, we have to insist that like if someone is trying to ban books or if someone is trying to restrict the access to information and re- you know, this is this is our job and it's all parents job to to speak up and i do think you're just right you like we're not organized in the same way there's no there's no 
organization nationally that's saying, okay, so you need to get into your school district. You need to get into your school board and really fight back. Or maybe there is, and I just don't know about it. Brushma's but I do think be, Brushma and Marshall plans for moms are going to be right there. I'm yeah. ready. I am ready. It, right? if, it, well, it, don't talk to me about that. that. Is that it? Yes, are you thinking about that? Absolutely. I yeah, love it. Tell me. No. So tell me all about it. I well, want to uh, let's debut. Let's start uh, talking. You know, it's true. Though. Not debuting, I, I but mean, start we talking. We need to have our own parents' agenda. You know what I mean? Yes. For, for moderate yes. and progressive parents. And we do need to be telling people to run right. for their school board. We do need to be telling them to fight, you know, for access to information and, and knowledge and for all these other structural, you know, points we talked about in paid leave and affordable childcare. We need to set our own agenda. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, you had talked a little bit, Paul, about messaging. And, you know, when I launched the Marshall Plan for Moms, people were like, well, why, why just moms? What about the dads? And, you know, what we sometimes miss, our people miss, is the emotionality around certain identities. Like I always say that the proudest thing, the proudest title I wear is mother, period. It is an emotional, strong identity that creates this sense of consensus and shared experience, right? Regardless of whether you're black, white, gay, yeah. trans, you know, binary, rich, poor, right? And so why don't we never lean into that? No, let's lean into it. I say that as a dad. Like, yes. let's lean into it. I mean, I the fact that um, a, a guns, uh, you know, gun sensible gun control with moms demand. Like, great, I'm in. You Absolutely. know, I mean, like, and, 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 you know, I don't need. A, it doesn't need to be about. I mean, Paul, that's let's such a go. Great, that's a great. Sorry, I just have to say this because I think we both like our kids had our kids go to the same school, and they had their first shooter drill this week. Yeah. And, you know, my baby came home and looked at me and says, I don't want to die, mom. And I just like the, you know, it was just like my heart just broke. Right. And I'm not so many parents have experienced this way. Before, you know what I mean? Every forever. We're literally traumatizing our children because we refuse to get guns out of our schools. You know, we it's not just moms to be in action that should be like lead, we all should be leading this fight. Right. We all should be in yeah. in this fight on them, you know. But but I uh, so so, OK, we, we only have a couple minutes left uh, because both of you are very busy and amazing <laughs> women who have lots to do. But I do want each of you to say just a, a couple words about what people should be looking for with your your organizations and how they can get involved. So, um, Sky, can you can you. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing with um, Democracy Forward and how people can get involved. And then Reshma, if you can talk about yours. Sure. Well, thanks, Paul. I mean, look, for people that are feeling um, uh, despair in this time, and particularly as we look at some of the courts, Democracy Forward, we're here for you and we want you part of our movement. You can go to our website at democracyforward.org. You can follow us on Twitter at democracyfwd. What we believe is that the vast majority of the American people support progress and democracy, and we are seeking to use their voices in new ways in the courts in order to leverage the power of people at this time. We have seen it work. We have seen it work against all odds. We have seen it work in courtrooms where uh, Trump appointed the judges. We've seen it work in courtrooms where people thought that we were going to lose. And we know that the voices of the American people matter. So come sign up for our updates and learn how to get involved. <clears throat> And I was just saying, yeah, uh, come to MarshallPlanForMoms.com. You know, we're our national movement that is pushing for public and private strategies to help, you know, mothers and families not just survive, but thrive. And so go to our website at MarshallPlanForMoms.com. And, you know, this is a moment to be angry, to be hopeful, but to fight. And if you want to fight with us to make sure that, you know, not only are our kids have access to information, have access to, you know, a world that's going to keep them free, um, but that we are going to, you know, start elevating and treating moms with the respect and the dignity that they deserve, then we need you. And I signed up and I got a great email. From uh, thank you. you. Go sign up. We'll sign up. We'll be a testimony, a testimony. Thanks, no, thanks listen, these are, I, I just want to say as us, as uh, thank you both. You're doing such amazing work. And what I love most is the idea of like, how do we work together? How do we oh. find ways that different organizations can find we're common honest. cause? Sky, Sky and, yeah, and you are, guys are on. Oh, we're, suing we're, some, no. we're suing some people together. So, so <laughs> look for a lawsuit in your neighborhood. <laughs> oh, I, listen, I am, I am, I'm here for it entirely. So thank you thank both you. for all you're doing. Thank you for joining us on State of Believe.
Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. I hope these conversations have been valuable to you, both as a validation of the serious concerns you may be feeling, but also as powerful messages of hope as we convene and amplify voices working with urgency and in concert to create strategies and coalitions for defending true American values and religious freedom for all. This is the moment these voices need to be heard as often and as widely as possible, and your support of State of Belief directly contributes to making that possible. I know each of us sometimes can feel frustrated and helpless in the face of what seems to be unrelenting attacks on what we believe this nation was destined to become. I urge you to get involved with the work our guests so passionately talked about and make sure others have the same opportunity to hear future programs and future opportunities to get involved as well by helping keep State of Belief on the air and help us grow. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. Email them. Share it on social. Play it with your children. Let's start the conversation wherever you are. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. I can't wait to introduce you to more amazing people. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.